Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 through 24. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17. Or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, 4, 17 through 24. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. And here in the context of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is instructing this church in Ephesus and by extension all believers regarding what does life in Christ look like? What does it look like after, after we profess faith in Christ? What, what does our life look like? And so he's addressing uh, this issue with these Christians in the church of Ephesus. Well, please pay careful attention for, again, this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 uh, through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts. Well, please turn with me in your order of worship to the confessional reading element of your catechism service. This morning we are confessing together Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day 33, Question and answers 88 through 91. As always, I will read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. Question 88 asks, what is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things, the dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. Question 89 asks, well, what, what is the dying away of the old self? To be genuinely sorry for sin, and more and more to hate and run from it. Question 90 asks, what is the rising to life of the new self? Wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. Question 91 then asks, what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith conform to God's law and are done for his glory, and not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. 
Well, as I mentioned before, this catechism, uh, which is called the Heidelberg Catechism, is one of our confessions of faith. We believe that it's a faithful articulation of the truth of Scripture. It's not Scripture, but everyone has an interpretation of Scripture, and we think that this is a faithful interpretation of Scripture. And one thing that it does is it sort of gives us the mountain peaks of Scripture. What are those things that we really need to latch onto, that we really need to internalize and know well when it comes to the Bible? That's not an easy question to answer. There's a lot of information in the Bible and a lot of things that we can get bogged down with. And so one of the helpful uh, uses of a catechism is it helps uh, center ourselves to know what are those things that we really need to internalize, know, and instruct our kids with regard to. And so uh, we have been making our way through this catechism. And, and boys and girls, uh, what are the three main sections in this catechism? Yes, Annalise? And which section are we currently in? Grace, uh, until last week, gratitude, yes, yes. Uh, we transitioned last week to gratitude. We've been in grace for a long time, many, many weeks. And to review that grace section, you know, if you remember, faith was sort of that structuring device that we, that we saw uh, being utilized throughout that grace section. So, boys and girls, what, what is the catechism's definition of true faith? Violet? Knowledge, assent, and trust. Very good. And what is the content of faith? What are those things that we need to know, uh, assent to, and trust in? Isaiah? The Apostles' Creed. Now, when we uh, know, assent to, and trust in these elements of the, the Apostles' Creed, what benefit do we receive? Isaiah? Christ's righteousness. Yes, when we profess faith in Christ, uh, Christ's righteousness is imputed to our account. The reason why we can stand before a holy God is not because of our righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness. Now, where does this faith come from, boys and girls? Noel? The Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit use to create this faith? Yes. The preaching of God's Word. Again, boys and girls, one of the reasons why church is so important is because this Holy Spirit uses what we do in church, namely the preaching of the Word, to create and nurture that faith in our hearts. Well, the Holy Spirit also uses other means. What are those other means to, to nurture or confirm our faith? Noel? Sacraments. How many sacraments are there? Isaiah? Two. two. Micah, do you, know, do you know the two sacraments? Yes. Yes. Holy communion and baptism. Very good. And then we, the last thing we considered in that grace section is, are the keys of the kingdom. The, 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 Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to the church. Now, boys and girls, do you know the two keys of the kingdom? A little bit tougher question. The two keys of the kingdom. Any idea? The tough question is the preaching of the gospel and church discipline unto repentance. Another way to think about this in relation to that theme of faith is that the Christ has given the church the authority to affirm and disaffirm professions of faith. So again, you see faith as being that structuring device throughout the entire grace section. What is faith? What is the content of faith? What is the benefit of faith? Uh, where does faith come from? And the church has the authority to affirm and disaffirm one's profession of faith.
Last week, we transitioned from grace to gratitude. So if you remember question answer 86, uh, the question summarized the entire catechism until, up, 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 up until this point. Since we are redeemed from our misery, from grace, through Christ, without any merit of our own, why must we do good works? If we are saved not by our works, but by the works of Christ, why would we be motivated to do good? That's a question that we need to wrestle with. If we do believe and embrace free justification by grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, then we have to wrestle with that question. Why would we be motivated to do good works? And the Catechism gave us five very good motivations. One thing that's very striking is that the motivation of, of fear, fear of judgment, and the motivation of earning or maintaining your salvation are not included. Those are not credible motivations for the believer. One of the main motivations that the Catechism gives us is gratitude. We are to live a life of service to God out of gratitude for what he has done for us in the gospel. And so this last third section of the Catechism is all about our life of service in response to the gospel. Now, have you ever thought about what, what does the Christian life look like? After one embraces the gospel, responds to the gospel, what do, what, what do the ensuing years and decades look like? What does the Christian life look like? What are some possible answers that, uh, that you have heard uh, that maybe you can think of in response to that question? What does the life of a Christian look like? Trials and tribulations, yes, that's very very much a part of the life of a Christian. Anything else? Moral, right. We have to live a certain way. John, oh, Jackie? Manner worthy of our calling. Our lifestyle should accord with our identity. Sean, did you? Daily conversion. Very good. Yes, an effort to live out the, the Great Commission, be a part of that Great Commission, be a part of what Christ is doing uh, here in this age. Yes. David. Okay, yes, that already but not yet tension that we experience in this age. Well, th this is a question that, that can provoke many, many answers. In fact, if you go to a Christian bookstore or more likely uh, Amazon and the Christian living section, you're going to find dozens, hundreds of titles that are seeking to respond and answer this question. What does it mean to live as a Christian? Well, Lord's Day 33 is essentially answering this question. What does the life of a Christian look like? And, and, it, and it answers this question in a very concise and helpful manner. How does Lord's Day 33 answer that question of what does, what does the life of a Christian look like? Two main things. Right, death and resurrection, dying to the old man, making alive the new man. In fact, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is telling 
these Christians in the church of, of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4. He's telling them to put off the old man with its desires and sin and to make alive the new man, which is created after God into righteousness and holiness. The rhythm of the Christian is a rhythm of putting off the old man and making alive the new. That is really what the Christian life is all about. According to Paul, and the, the catechism is echoing Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 4. What I'd like us to do then this morning is to consider these two main aspects of the Christian life. What does it mean to put to death the old man? And then what does it mean to make alive that new man? And so first, in question answer 89... We, uh, the catechism asks, what is the dying away of the old self? Now, what are the three main duties that the answer gives us that make up what it means to, to put to death that old man? Right, so to be genuinely sorry, to hate it, to run from it. And I should mention that when question 88 talks about true repentance and conversion, we oftentimes think of that as that one-time act at the beginning of our life when we first uh, uh, embraced the gospel, the gospel first made sense. Uh, we decided to follow Jesus ourselves. That's usually what we think of when we think of repentance and conversion. That's not what the catechism is thinking of. The catechism is thinking of our ongoing life of repentance. And Martin Luther, his very first thesis in the 95 Theses, uh, he says that when our Lord Jesus Christ said repent, he envisioned that our whole life would be one of repentance. So another way to think about this is sanctification. So question 89 tells us that there are three main aspects, three main ways in which we lay the axe to that old man, that sinful nature which resides within us. And the first way in which we put to death that old man, that sinful nature, is, is by having a genuine remorse for our sin. Now Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, he says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So Paul is contrasting there in that verse this difference between worldly grief and godly grief. Worldly grief and godly grief. Now, worldly grief is grief that, yes, has a, 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 a general level of remorse for one's sin, but the remorse is really over the consequences that we now have because of our sin. It's, it's regret that we got caught. While godly grief is remorse over the fact that we have sinned against God. Think of what David says in Psalm 51 verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David experienced many negative consequences because of his sins with, against Bathsheba and Uriah. Uh, the child died. His family was torn apart. His kingdom was torn apart. Yet David is, first of all, remorseful over the fact that he has sinned against God. That's godly grief. And so we are called to be genuinely sorry over our sin 
because we have transgressed God's law. We have sinned against our Heavenly Father. That's godly grief. And so, boys and girls, you, you feel genuine uh, remorse o- over your sin, not, not primarily because you're now grounded or you have consequences because you disobeyed your parents or you're mean to your sibling, but, but are you remorseful and sorry for, for your sin because you broke God's law? You've sinned against him? That's what the catechism is getting at. Well, catechism moves on and it says that second way in which we put to death the old man is by having a growing hatred for our sin. Now, of course, we all are outraged by sin that's out there in other people that we see in this world. It may be the sins of injustice, abuse, tyranny, sloth, deceit, adultery, which you know, breaks apart families, and when we think about the kids within those homes. We, we're outraged by these things, but are we outraged by the sin in our own life? Are we outri- outraged by the rebellion that we have against the authority structures in our life? Are we, are we outraged by the anger that we have in our heart? Are we outraged by the lust that is in our heart? Are we outraged by the ways in which we uh, seek to misuse, uh, misuse God's gifts that he has given us and thus uh, break that commandment against stealing? Uh, are we outraged by our temptation to, to lie, even tell white lies? Are we outraged by our covetousness, our, co- our, our coveting heart, whereby we, we're never content in our present circumstances? Do we hate our sin? Well, the third aspect A question answer 89 lists for us is that we are to run away from it. We are to run away from it. You know, Proverbs 6 tells us that, you know, a man cannot hold burning uh, coals close to his chest and not be burned and then equates that with someone uh, committing adultery. Uh, The the, the sage is saying in Proverbs 6 that we can't can't, uh, cozy up with sin and think we're not going to get burned. We are to run away from sin. We are to flee from it. You know, if, if you're being pursued by a predator, you're getting as far away from that pre- predator as possible. If you think of the moral life as having two opposing destinations, the destination of sin and unrighteousness on the one hand and the destination of, of, of righteousness on the other hand, we are called to be pursuing righteousness, which at the same time is running away from sin. And so are you running? Do you run away from tempting situations? This is what we're called to do as we are called to put to death that old man. Now you'll see that all three of these things build upon one another. It's only when we have a genuine remorse for our sin that we will hate it for what it is. It's only when we're genuinely remorseful over our sin and we hate it that we will run from it because we recognize that sin only leads to heartache. Sin is going against the way God has made us to live in this created universe, and thus uh, we desire to run away from it because we realize that it leads to, uh, to, to heartache and, and ruin in this life. Well, question answer 90 then moves on to, to speak to what it means to make, al- uh, 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 to, um, uh, make alive that new man. Now, how would you summarize question answer 90? What does it mean uh, for this, this new man to, to rise to life? Well, 
Notice the themes of, of delight and joy that are present. Question answer 90. We see that it's wholehearted joy in God through Christ and then a delight to live according to that will. So there's two sorts of delights that we are to have. And the first delight is that we are to have this wholehearted joy in God through Christ. Just have a thought experiment for a moment. Imagine you embrace the worldview of secular humanism. There is no God. We came from nothing. We're going nowhere. There's no objective truth that exists. There's no objective meaning to your life. There's no, uh, no place for you to turn with the guilt that you feel in your conscience. There's no comfort, sure comfort, to have during the difficult moments of life. And there's no place to turn to help you make sense of the sufferings and the pain and the evil that exists in this age. You then are just called to make as much meaning as you can with the lot that you are given. Sounds pretty depressing. Think for a moment all that we have in the Christian faith. We have a sure and ready absolution, a place to go with the guilt of our sin. We have a sure and certain hope of what lies ahead of us beyond this veil of tears. We have somewhere to go to help us make sense of the sufferings of this life, namely the cross of Jesus Christ. As we go to the cross of Jesus Christ, we know that God is a God who's able to take the worst act of evil and turn it into the greatest good and that same God promises to do the same in our life with our trials and afflictions. We have comforts in the midst of the valleys of the shadow of death because we have a heavenly father who promises to provide whatever we need, body and soul, for as long as he ordains to put breath in our lungs. We have all of these things by virtue of our Christian faith. Do we delight in this? Or do we just take it for granted? Do we delight that God is our Father, that Christ is our elder brother? The Catechism calls us to delight, to delight in, in who we are as the children of God. We are to delight in God through Christ. Now notice that the Catechism moves on and also talks about how we are to delight in the will of God. We are to delight in the will of God. Now, where do we find the will of God? The Bible? What part of the Bible? The law, right? The law. God's moral revelation. God's will is found in the law. And so we are to delight in, in the law of God. And God's law is given to us as a guide. Now imagine for a moment, uh, you have someone in your life who you love, who, who you care for, and you desire to express your love and gratitude to that person. But you don't know how that person feels loved. And oftentimes we, we seek to love people the way we feel loved and not the way other people, how they feel loved. So let's say you're, you're actually trying to love this person in a way that, in which they feel loved, but you don't know how they feel loved. It would be an incredibly frustrating place to be. You have all these emotions, but you don't know how to express these, these emotions in a way in which they feel uh, loved and um, uh, your gratitude. 
One of the reasons why God has given us his law is so that we might know how we can express our gratitude to him for all that he has done for us in a way that pleases him. One of the reasons why God has given us his law is that we might know how he wants us to love him. God doesn't leave us in a place of confusion. God doesn't leave us in a place of frustration. He tells us explicitly how we are to express our gratitude uh, to him for the gospel. It's found in his law. And so we are to delight in this. We are to delight in the fact that God has revealed himself in his law. He, has, he hasn't left us in the dark. Another way in which we delight in God's will or his law is by delighting in the wisdom of his law. I think this is a very important point for us to consider, especially in our own day and age. I think many people who, uh, young people who grow up in the church and end up going to college or end up you know, moving out of, uh, of the home and living independently, they, they're not ignorant of the church's morality. They're not, in most instances, they're not ignorant of the church's morality. They're not necessarily ignorant of what the Ten Commandments say, uh, but rather what they struggle with, they struggle with the morality of the church feeling arbitrary. They struggle with seeing uh, the church's morality, the Bible's morality, as being wise. Imagine a young person, you know, at college or or somewhere else meeting someone who's homosexual. This person says, I've always felt these things. And... You know, I wish I, I didn't have these feelings, but this is how I've always felt. And this Christian young person may, may, may think to themselves, how can God condemn this person for feelings that he or she has always had? You know, why, does, why does the Bible have the sexual ethics that it has? Did God just wake up one day and declare things to be this way? Is it just arbitrary? Is there any wisdom behind the ethic that we have in Scripture? Young people wrestle with this. Again, it's not really an issue of what does the Bible say on issue X, Y, or Z. It's why is this a wise thing to do? It seems arbitrary. It's very important then for us as a church, for you as parents, to not only instruct uh, the covenant youth, covenant children, in, in what God's law says, but also in the wisdom of God's law. To teach our young people that, that God's law is good for us. And not just as Christians, but even as non-Christians. I've said this before, but we should think of morality as, as akin to a moral order, a moral order that's analogous to the physical order. Now, it's obvious, it's self-evident evident to all of us that you cannot live a long and good life in this world if you seek to defy this physical order. Again, I've said this before, that if you met someone who thought they can jump off a very tall building and not die, you think that person is crazy, but they're definitely not going to live a very long life. You can't defy this physical order and expect good things to come. Well, so it is with a moral order. God has written into the fabric of this universe a moral order, and when we seek to cut against the grain and the current of this moral order and expect good things to come, we are just as crazy when, as if we were seeking to defy gravity. And so the Bible's morality is true not just because the Bible says it's true, but because it's true according to the nature of things. There's a a self-evident nature to the ethics of Scripture. It's wisdom. You think of another issue you you can think of is, think of the issue of cohabitation. 
think of a Christian, uh, uh, you know, a Christian couple. They're engaged, and they're they're going to get married, and they think, well, why not move in together? What really? What what is the significance of a piece of paper? Seems arbitrary, right? It's a piece of paper that separates gross sin from obedience to God. How is that not just arbitrary? But then when you press into the wisdom of this um, through other avenues, you see that it's actually quite self-evident, um, the reason why Scripture says what it does in relation to marriage. For instance, I, a while ago I, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal, and the researchers who composed uh, the research behind this article were essentially seeking to combat the, the conventional wisdom that says that cohabitation is actually the wisest option because it allows uh, two people to test things out before they make that formal commitment. However, the researchers found that this is actually not wise. This is, this is, what, uh, this is one thing that they found. They, they, they say that previous cohabitations may give husbands and wives experience with breaking up from serious relationships, making them more likely to head for the exit when the going gets tough. Essentially, what they found is that when two people are in a serious relationship, a relationship in which they experience physical and emotional intimacy, and the relationship ends, what happens is that a new pathway is created in their brain, a pathway in which commitment and intimacy are severed. And the next, person, next time that person enters into a serious relationship and that relationship ends, that pathway is strengthened and that relationship between commitment and intimacy is further severed. And the next time that person is in an intimate relationship or serious relationship and the going gets tough, it's very easy to head for the exit because that pathway is so strong and the relationship between intimacy and commitment are very far apart at that point. And we start to see... Uh, uh, research like that, you, you, you begin to see that the Bible's ethic when it comes to marriage is not arbitrary. It's true according to the nature of things. It's self-evident. I presume the, these researchers are not, are not Christians. And so it's helpful for us to press in to the natural law aspect of these things uh, for us to see that the Bible's ethic is actually very wise. And we are to delight in the wisdom that we glean from uh, the law of God which we have written upon our hearts and revealed in Scripture. So again, the way in which we cause this new man to, to, to uh, rise to new life is by delighting in God through Christ and delighting in the will of God as found in the law of God. Now briefly, I'd like us to turn our attention to question answer 91. What are good works? It's a very... A very interesting, very uh, good question. What qualifies as a good work? Think about the many good things that non-Christians, even atheists, have done throughout history that have benefited society at large. Are those good works? Well, notice that the catechism, the first, the first parameter that the catechism gives us is that good works need to proceed from a heart of true faith. Now imagine, for an instance, there's a man who, who's an art scholar and he judges art for a living. And you go into this man's office, and on his wall is a drawing from his three-year-old daughter. And you think to yourself, why does this art scholar have such a terrible piece of art in his office? We know that it's obvious that that 
that man is delighting in that drawing, not because it's an objectively good piece of art, but because it's from his daughter. In the same way, the good works of Christians are not objectively good. There's no reason why our work should be accepted by God. And according to strict justice, they shouldn't. But because of Christ, we are adopted into the family of God, and because we are the children of God, God delights in our works as that man delights in the drawing of his three-year-old daughter. This is why true faith is so important when it comes to um, this discussion of good works. The second parameter is that they need to conform to God's law. I, as a minister, only have authority to bind your consciences to the law of God. I have many opinions, but your consciences are not bound by my opinions. There are many traditions of men that have passed down throughout the ages. Your consciences are not bound by mere tradition. Your consciences are bound by the law of God, and in our context, they're, they're bound by the law of God as interpreted by our creeds and confessions. This is a safeguard from uh, abuse from, from the church, and it's a safeguard for your own conscience. So good, uh, good works need to conform to God's law, and they need to be unto God's glory. The telos, the goal of all of our works, need to be the glory of God. You think about that when you're going through your life? You think about uh, glorifying God in the mundane tax, tasks that God has called you to? You think about representing God uh, to the people around you. You think about making God's name look great to your neighbors who live next to you. Boys and girls, when you were baptized, God's name was placed upon you. You're baptized into the name of the triune God, and thus you are set apart. Set apart from the children who are born uh, in pagan homes. You have the benefit of being raised in the covenant community, of hearing the gospel preached to you every Sunday from, uh, from the moment you, you have the, the power of cognition. And you are called to represent God well to those around you because you bear his name in the waters of baptism. Now we have to remember that, as we saw last, uh, as we've been seeing in the catechism, that the gospel is our motivation here. Remember, guilt, grace, gratitude, the gospel is what puts wind in our sails to do these things. And furthermore, it is the Spirit who's ultimately putting to death that old man and causing that new man to rise to new life. That's what we saw last week in question answer 86, that Christ through his Spirit is the one who renews us. We saw that in Psalm 51 as well. And so even though we are called to put effort into these things, we are called to be sorry for our sin, we are called to delight in God, we have to trust and rest in the fact that it's the Spirit who is the one who produces these things in our hearts and in our lives. Well, next time we will turn our attention to consider an exposition of the Ten Commandments, uh, which, uh, the, and it's these commandments that our good works are to conform to. So let us pray.